If I were to ask you to name a scripture passage that holds the most meaning to you, would you have one? Or maybe many? Maybe there's a passage from one of the Psalms that's stamped upon your heart, or words of assurance coming from Romans or Philippians, or Jesus' words that have commissioned us to go and make disciples of all the nations. Maybe you heard it this morning in the spoken words of grace coming out of Ephesians that said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one may boast. Or perhaps this verse from John's gospel is key for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Uh, John 3.16. By many accounts, this is the most well-known, most often quoted verse in all of scripture. It has been referred to as the gospel in miniature, and for many Christians, particularly those influenced by evangelicalism, it is regarded as the most concise expression of Christian faith. Evangelist Billy Graham was the predominant leader of the wave of American evangelicalism during the last decades of the 20th century. Graham would recite this verse, John 3.16, at his revivals and crusades, which were attended by thousands of people. And everyone who attended one of Graham's crusades was gifted a copy of John's Gospel. And it became very commonplace to see handwritten signs with John 3.16 being waved by fans in the stands during major sporting events. The verse showed up, and still does actually, on billboards, bumper stickers, t-shirts, and nowadays even on yard signs as if promoting a political candidate for public office. Now through the evangelical lens, or the largely white evangelical lens, John 3.16 is a standalone verse, which tells of God's great love, which paves the way for one's personal salvation through a confession of sin and leading to an assurance of eternal salvation in heaven with Christ. Now, I know not all Christians approach the text in the same way, and it may or may not speak to you and your own faith experience. And I honor the fact that evangelicalism has influenced so many Christians in their faith and Christian missions and evangelism around the world. It was not part of my faith upbringing, although it was an ever-present influence in many of the churches that I pastored uh, in rural North Carolina in the United States. And I confess that I've had my own struggles with this text over the years. See, this scripture text carries a big promise, though I don't believe that it is meant to be a private one. It's a promise for the world, the cosmos, everything that God has created. Its beauty and power and meaning, I believe, are best understood within its full context, but not taken just on its own. And to do that, we need to open up the entire third chapter of John's Gospel, even wider than what we heard just now this morning. Now, as chapter 3 opens up, John tells us of the man Nicodemus, who pays a nighttime visit to see Jesus. We know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a religious man and well-versed in the scriptures, and he was a respected leader in the Jewish faith. 
We also know that the Pharisees were known as the keepers of the law, and they were often at odds with Jesus because in their minds his teachings uh, were contradictory to the long-established Mosaic laws. Now, whether Nicodemus came to see Jesus out of a personal curiosity or whether he was there to gather information on behalf of the Sanhedrin, it's not really clear. But regardless, Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus as a teacher who has come from God. And Jesus responds by telling him that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, some translations say born from above, while others, like King James and the New International Version, say born again. But whichever phrase is used, Jesus is talking about rebirth. Now, Nicodemus is confused as he seems to be taking Jesus very literally. So how can someone be born anew? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born again, he asks. So Jesus speaks about the difference between spirit and flesh, telling Nicodemus that to be born from above is about a spiritual transformation. It's a whole heart change, a whole life change, a process guided by the power of the Holy Spirit where one is transformed by love. Now it's at this point in the conversation where we pick up with today's gospel reading, starting with verse 14. Jesus is now shifting his focus to the purpose of his life, his death, and his resurrection. And he says it this way. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now maybe it's just me, but I find this to be an odd reference to the serpents in the wilderness. It really is an obscure story which doesn't usually get much attention. And to be honest, I would have been perfectly fine to have skipped over this verse altogether. But today, the serpents cannot be ignored. <laughs> and thanks to the creativity of the worship committee who have given us uh, a more imaginative understanding of in its retelling. Now, for now, I want to put aside some of the confusing, if not troubling, questions that this story raises about God's action, and instead clarify why John found it to be something worth mentioning. Now, last week, as Fulata pointed out in her message, John, the gospel writer, has a different perspective than that of the other three gospel writers. John's gospel is steeped in symbolism and imagery, which tells a more theological story of Jesus. He wasn't as concerned about adhering to the details of events. So for John, this seemingly obscure reference adds a significant theological element to what Jesus' message. Now we tend to associate serpents with sin and death. I mean, think of the Garden of Eden. Yet in this story from the book of Numbers, God is commanding that in order to be saved from the deadly bite of a venomous snake, the Israelites were to gaze upon this bronze staff and the serpent that Moses had made and then lift it up. And in this way, the curse becomes the way to the cure. Now, one Johannine scholar explains it this way. The lifting up of the serpent in the Old Testament was a symbolic act, 
a liturgical act even. And in a similar way, so is the crucifixion of Jesus, as he was soon to be lifted up on the cross. To John, the death of Jesus did not signify death, but rather it is the moment of God's glorious triumph. And like the serpent that Moses raised on the pole to heal the Israelites, all who look to Jesus and believe that he is the one who is sent from God will be saved. Now a quick footnote here. The serpent and staff were known as a sign of healing in neighboring ancient cultures as well. And we see remnants of that today in medical logos, including that of the World Health Organization, which depict what is called the staff of Asclepius with two intertwining stakes on a staff or a similar caduceus with a single snake. And those are still recognized as a symbol of medicine and healing. But let us not digress. So the cross, which is an instrument of torture, or meant to be an instrument of torture and death, becomes reinterpreted as a symbol of new life through Christ's resurrection from the dead. Which brings us to the heart of Jesus' message. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It's a message of God's all-encompassing, unconditional, never-ending love. Not a love that condemns, but a love that will go to any length to let us know, to let the world know just how beloved we are in God's eyes. It is the greatest love story ever told, And it is a love that is based not on our worthiness, but on God's goodness. You see, belief is not a measuring stick. It's a willingness to place our trust in Christ, whose love will never let us go. And then as we look to and follow in the footsteps of the one who taught us the way to love, our actions become an outpouring of God's love into the world around us. God gave Jesus as a gift to the world when the word became flesh at Christmas. And in his healing and his teaching, and through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, God's love was ultimately fulfilled and God was glorified. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, as Andy addressed, uh, the cross was not the purpose, but rather the consequence of Jesus's ministry. And his purpose was to bring this radical message of God's unconditional love. It is a love that brings light into the darkness, justice that brings restoration, hope in the place of despair. It is this love that Jesus was willing to die for, this love that overcomes sin and even death. Jesus came in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, I don't think that John is talking about a just me and Jesus sort of salvation with a seat reserved for me in heaven after I die. To save in Greek means to deliver or protect, to heal, preserve, or to make well. Salvation is about the restoration of life in the here and now, in our lives, in our relationships, in the world around us. 
Jesus is calling us to new life. And yes, during the season of Lent, we're reminded that a part of that call is a call to repentance, to turn around and to change our direction. But with this new life, this new birth in the Spirit, something happens and you realize that God is rooting for you and not against you. As one writer puts it, this journey, our pilgrimage of love, begins and deepens as we hear God murmur within our hearts, I love you just as you are. I so love you that I come to heal you and to give you life. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts. It is all right to be yourself. You don't have to be perfect or clever. You are loved just as you are. As you become more conscious that you are loved, you will want to respond to that love with love and grow in love. Now, as a Methodist, I draw from John Wesley's insights here on what he calls the marks of the new birth. Wesley said that at the point when a person is given new life through the Spirit, that is when the person's life begins. Wesley describes it as a heightening of all our senses spiritually. We begin to see things differently. We hear things differently. We become attuned to the way that God sees and the way that God hears. So your eyes are opened and you sense just how deep and pervasive God's love is for you. And being coming secure in that love, you become free to live into the fullness of that love in your life and for others. So we become participants in God's redemptive work in the world around us, here and now. Now, in September of 1954, a young Martin Luther King Jr. moved to Montgomery, Alabama from Boston. It was the city of Montgomery that would later call him from the pulpit to the street, cementing his call to follow Jesus into the work of justice. And with his first sermon in the pulpit at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, King preached on John 3 and the story of God's unlimited love in this way. He said, God's love has breadth. It is a big love. It is a broad love. God's love is too big to be limited to a particular race. It is too big to be wrapped in a particularistic garment. It is too great to be encompassed by any single nation. God is a universal God. And then King continued, this unlimited love has been a ray of hope and has given a sense of belonging to the hundreds of disinherited people who proclaim, like the enslaved preacher who risked everything to teach his enslaved congregants in the shadows of the plantation, you ain't no slave, but you're God's child. Dr. King's words were a renewed cry for God's great love, a love that is big enough and vast enough for each one and for the whole world. And for King and the Civil Rights Movement, the story of God's unlimited love became a source of action grounded in God's justice. And a year later, Dr. King led the Montgomery bus boycotts, which sparked change in the world for the sake of God's kingdom. So I ask, 
How does that great unlimited love of God call out to us today? How does it stir in you a renewed desire to participate in God's saving work of redemption in this world? Hear this invitation. Trust in the message that God so loves the world, still, now, today, forever. And God so loves you with a love that is beyond measure. Know that you are deeply loved. And may God's spirit continue to transform you as a gift of love for the world, a participant in God's redemptive work now and forever. Thanks be to God. Amen.